0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Aho Way, a podcast presented by the faculty and trainees at the University of Arizona Internal Medicine Residency Program at South Campus. Each episode, we will delve into the evidence-based, patient-centered practice of ambulatory medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Indu Partha, a board-certified general internist with a passion for primary care and medical education. It has been a long time since we last released an episode. I'll blame the delay on a year that was jam-packed with changes. My loyal sidekick, son, Ajay, graduated from high school and left for college, leaving me without my producer and editor. We moved homes, moved him, and moved a daughter across the country. On a professional note, big changes are coming here to Tucson. Our two internal medicine residency programs at the South Campus and the Tucson Campus will be merging into one as of July 2022. As you might imagine, there has been a lot of planning and preparing as we anticipate the creation of something pretty amazing. I'm thrilled today to turn the mic over to a fabulous guest host, Dr. Sean Lee. Dr. Lee is a third year internal medicine resident at the University of Arizona internal medicine program at the Tucson campus, a fellow podcast lover and a sincere and compassionate physician. Stay tuned to listen to his interview with Dr. Loyal Talotson, Clinical Associate Professor of Gastroenterology. Dr. Talotson received his MD-PhD at Harvard Medical School. He completed his residency in internal medicine at Duke University Medical Center before finishing his fellowship in gastroenterology at Massachusetts General Hospital. Let's listen to them break down a case of a patient with epigastric.
1: Thank you for that introduction, Dr. Partha, and now we're going to get started with Dr. Tillotson here, Uh, just so our listeners can get to know you a little better, we'll have some introduction questions kind of inspired by other podcasts like the Curbsiders and Clinical Problem Solvers, but um, how do you like to enjoy your free time here?
2: Oh, uh, Tucson is nice and warm compared to where I'm um, from originally. Um, My name is Loyal Tillotson, and I have an MD-PhD, and I'm here... um, Uh, on the faculty as an associate professor, Um, actually uh, postponing retirement as um, I've got gray hair, but I'm happy to attend on the GI service and um, discuss GI problems.
1: Great, Um, hope you're liking Tucson. It sounds like it's a lot warmer from where you were previously. Um, Do you have any favorite picks here in Tucson so far? Have you gotten a chance to explore anything here?
2: well it was hard at first uh, because we uh, my wife and i moved here uh, in the middle of the COVID epidemic but uh, we see it's a beautiful area and it's uh, great for bicycling and other kinds of outdoor activities
1: yeah a lot lots of hiking trails and Mount lemon is, is totally it's really cool especially in the winter right uh, any um, words of wisdom to our trainees who might be listening in
2: well, it's hard work uh, going through training and um, a lot of sleepless nights and uh, taking care of complicated and sick patients. But it's uh, worth the effort to uh, get better and better at understanding the underlying uh, diseases that uh, afflict people and how best to help them. So, uh, only advice is to uh, stick with it and. Uh, get the most out of your time
1: uh, as a fellow or resident and fellow. Great, sound advice. All right, we'll get started with the case now. So this is a real-life patient we had uh, in our South Campus internal medicine clinic, and this patient's de-identified. So we have Mr. Harry Pallore, a 67-year-old, non-English-speaking African refugee with diabetes, hypertension, anxiety. He came to our clinic after a recent ED visit for epigastric pain, and I was gradually worsening for a week. In the emergency room, his blood sugar was elevated at 300. His lipase was normal. His CT scan showed fatty liver, but no acute injury. The pain eventually subsided by itself in the ED, and the patient was discharged. What are your initial impressions on the case?
2: Well, my first uh, impression is that <clears throat> whoever came up with this case uh, has a sense of humor because uh, uh, the, the, the patient's name is uh, H. Pylori, and uh, so I can see what you'd like to talk about. But uh, when you have a patient who shows up, uh, <clears throat> basically a 67-year-old man from Africa who uh, is complaining of epigastric pain of a fairly sh- uh, subacute uh, duration, and um and then they give you a few other uh, facts of uh, that he had elevated uh, blood glucose, uh, normal lipase, uh, CT scan of fatty liver, um, and uh, also his um, baseline—you um, know—disorders of diabetes, hypertension, anxiety. So you have uh, a number of things that would come to mind with an initial differential, and I think it's always helpful to start to um, think in the broadest terms of what your differential is so that you can uh, start to frame your questions for the patient because most of the key information is obtained in the history rather than in the testing or the uh, lab studies so I like to keep a fairly broad differential and then um, start to um, Uh, narrow it down as I I get certain questions answered. But uh, with this patient, I would say clearly with epigastric pain, um, uh, you would be thinking of uh, peptic ulcers, uh, esophagitis, gastritis, uh, possibly uh, pancreas, uh, biliary disease, pancreatitis, or gallbladder disease, Um, upper tract malignancy certainly in his age group and from Africa where it's a bit more common to have uh, gastric cancer you know you would consider that and even functional uh, dyspepsia which uh, can uh, give people uh, discomfort Uh, dyspepsia or even from uh, gastroparesis uh, gastric retention can give you that so it's a fairly broad differential that you see the uh, initial studies of the um, of the uh, uh, chemistries we were not given a lot of information, but we are given enough that uh, with a normal lipase and a cat scan that does not show uh, pancreatic disease that he does not likely have uh, uh, pancreatic cancer or um, or a large gastric cancer or something of that sort so we can be st- starting to narrow the differential down now
1: great Um, I know you mentioned his age and kind of being from Africa are some risk factors for H. pylori are there any other specific risk factors like socioeconomic status or diet and does stress play a role in any of this I've had some patients ask me that right well let's start with
2: the H. pylori since that's part of his name and uh, he um, he has a high risk factor for having H. pylori uh, because of his um, coming from africa the the prevalence rate there is probably seventy to eighty percent and um, it's a disease that's caught caught uh, early in life by most people, so in his childhood as a toddler, he probably was exposed and uh, then contracted it and the uh the organism has uh, so well adapted to chronic uh, um, living in the gastric mucin layer uh, along the surface lining of the stomach that it can uh, stay there for a lifetime. And so I suspect that that uh, he would have uh, H. pylori just uh, based on the odds of it. Hmm. Um, in terms of uh, ethnicity, socioeconomic, uh, and diet, those uh, things don't really play a huge role in uh, H. pylori exposure. It really comes from uh, what part of the world you're in and um and then perhaps some uh regarding uh hygiene in that part of the world uh stress does not play any role with uh, H pylori but a lot of people um you know assume that uh having a lot of stress in one's life you can uh, have a higher likelihood of gastric uh, ulcers or peptic ulcer disease That's perhaps true uh, in terms of physiologic stress when you're in an ICU on a ventilator, but it's not uh, really been borne out by most studies uh, to show that uh, just having a stressful job, for example. Otherwise, we'd be considering um, many of you as uh, having a high risk of uh, uh, peptic ulcers uh, given the stress uh, load that uh, most uh, residents are under.
1: (laughs) That's true. Okay, back to the case on further questioning. This patient, he admitted to intermittent burning pain actually for a month, not a week. And it was worse at night, worse with spicy foods. And so the patient tried to self alleviate by drinking a lot of water and Tylenol, but it had minimal improvement. The patient also noted sour taste throughout the day, no nausea or vomiting, uh, and normal bowel, bowel movements daily. Uh, we ordered an H. pylori breath test and pantoprazole was prescribed just given the severity of his symptoms. Uh, and uh, patient reported significant improvement within a week of starting pentoprazole, and despite instructions to hold off on pentoprazole for the te- for H. pylori testing, the patient continued to taking the medication, and the breath return breath test actually returned positive still. Well, um, that's
2: a pretty common scenario. Um, well, you know the way he describes his symptoms uh, would uh, fit with peptic ulcer disease, or perhaps even. Uh, Gastric, refl- or gastric esophageal reflux. A lot of times people get burning at the lower end of their esophagus. That is described just that way. Uh, the fact that he has acid brash um, um, would indicate that he has a significant reflux problems. Spicy foods in them in and of themselves don't uh, uh, lead to ulcer disease, but they can certainly exacerbate the uh, acid's uh, uh, secretions uh, after uh, a meal. Um, normal bowel habits no nausea and vomiting would uh, go against this uh, being um, a situation where he had gastric outlet obstruction or significant gastroparesis so we can kind of start to limit our um, uh, differential there Uh, he does not have any signs of bleeding uh, so that would um, be uh, one of the complications you'd worry about a lot with um, ulcers fact that Tylenol and water are not effective is not surprising. Uh, they generally don't uh, make any difference for this, and that he did respond to uh, a, um, a proton pump inhibitor right off the bat is uh, also fits with uh, uh, ulcer disease or uh, possibly um, uh, gastroesophageal reflux. And then the H. pylori t- breath test was ordered. That is uh, of the Of the methods to um, check for H. pylori that is uh, one of the best um, in terms of sensitivity and specificity uh, you're relying on um, the um, bacteria to break down a a urea containing um, um, solution that the patient drinks on an empty stomach and when that's released uh, then you can pick it up so with the carbon dioxide so It's a great test. Uh, The other one is uh, H. pylori stool antigen Um, that is pretty close to the breath test in specificity and sensitivity. Uh, Sometimes for some patients it's easier to obtain, for others it's not, Uh, can be a bit hit or miss as well. Uh, The serology or the blood test is probably your least uh, helpful and I, I generally don't recommend getting those fact that the patient responded with pantoprazole and then went for his breath test and had a positive test does show you that he uh, has, I mean, that's just a confirmatory that he has H. pylori. Normally, the taking of a PPI will uh, suppress the H. pylori bacterium so that it's not uh, very active and it doesn't need to use its urease very much because you've now more neutralize the environment that the H. pylori is exposed to. So I think if he had been on pantoprazole for a month and then you did the H. pylori breath test, it might have been negative. But a week is probably not enough time to suppress it that much. Um, one of the things that I would have uh, done a bit differently here uh, with the workup is, at this point, I would have uh, uh, ordered a upper endoscopy. Um, I would not have ordered a barium study. That's um, uh, not very sensitive and kind of a waste of money and time. But I would have ordered an upper endoscopy for a couple of reasons. One is that this is probably a chronic condition that he's had rather than just something that's uh, subacute. Secondly, um, you'd uh, want to... you know, really rule out peptic ulcer disease in this guy because you would treat it differently than just uh, based on the H. pylori breath test and the pantoprazole empiric therapy. The third reason is his age and uh, where he's from. Uh, He would be a person that I would consider to be at above average risk for uh, gastric cancer or uh, possibly Barrett's or esophageal cancer. So I would Uh, rule those out uh, early on and I think it would help you um, specify your therapy we've already um, on that list of the differential we've already been able to knock off the the ones involving the pancreas the gallbladder um, uh, gastroparesis and things like that but I really feel that we need to rule out gastric cancer and um, perhaps esophageal disorder
1: okay can you touch upon a little bit about some of the indications for testing for H. pylori? When should we order the like breath test versus a stool test?
2: Well, I think both tests work uh, quite well, and it may be, depend on what the patient wants to do. I've had some patients that really do not want to bother submitting a stool sample, and others that are, uh, don't want to go through the hassle of coming into the lab and having an appointment and getting their breath test. Uh, again I would say the serology is not very helpful Um, the uh, upper endoscopy though would be another way of diagnosing the H. pylori and you can do that with biopsies uh, and histopathology they do special stains to see the uh, the the helicobacter Um, but um, and you can also do enzymatic tests uh, in some labs for um H pylori which gives you a more immediate uh, answer to the question okay. um, the uh H pylori testing um we he's going to he's he has it by the nature of the the um the case the way it's presented so you want to treat to eradicate and that brings you into the realm of you know how do you treat this and his H. pylori, we don't we don't really know whether he's been exposed to um, macrolide uh, antibiotics in the past. We don't know what the resistance rate to clarithromycin is in, in Africa. It might be fairly low in that area. And when he got the H. pylori, it may be of the type that is sensitive to that. So the standard triple therapy might be reasonable to start off with uh, in his case. Uh, or you may go to a quadruple therapy, um, triple therapy with the uh, clarithromycin um, um, amoxicillin or metronidazole and um, the PPI, and then the quadruple therapy if you're going to add in bismuth or peptobismol. There are various things, and I think they may have mentioned here that they used this um, combination therapy uh, that's marketed as pylera That's a brand uh, that combines bismuth, tetracycline, metronidazole, and PPI. It's got a pretty good track record uh, in terms of uh, not uh, having a high resistance rate. The problem for a patient like this is um, uh, it's easy to prescribe. Banner carries it on its uh, formulary but as soon as the patient shows up in the pharmacy and they tell him what his bill is he's going to freak out and and uh, refuse to, to buy it because it is very expensive so you may end up disordering the in, the the ingredients of this combination therapy separately kind of a la carte and uh treating him that way so i think uh any one of those uh, treatments uh would be reasonable to go with this fellow but i would have your nurse or someone follow up to make sure that he's actually got the medicine and he's taking it and he's not uh uh you know quitting uh, prematurely and then finally, you uh definitely want to verify eradication so I generally go out uh a month or two months of uh, uh beyond the therapy with the p p i uh, being taken daily and then have them hold the p p i for about two weeks in order to uh, do a breath test or a stool test. Uh, It's important that you hold that because, um, as we discussed earlier, uh, PPIs can suppress H. pylori, particularly its urease function. So you want to get them off of a PPI. Now, some patients, you know, be miserable during that two-week time when they're holding the PPI. They may get so much heartburn or uh, stomach pain that they'll be complaining, so you can um, coach them a bit. Uh, uh, PRN use of uh, Pepcid or uh, Tums or something like that is perfectly fine. That usually does not uh, interfere with the test. But they do need to have eradication verified in order for you to be, uh, you know, effectively eliminate this uh, bug. Now, let's say his, uh test comes back positive for the fact that you haven't eliminated it well it's it's not like he caught H. pylori again; he just never had complete eradication either from resistance, or the PPI didn't lower his um, gastric acid content enough, or um, he had um, some other compliance issues he was you know wasn't able to take it all the way through. There can be a number of reasons for why um, someone will fail. Uh, uh, on the eradication uh, checkup, so in that case, you would want to change your uh, your H pylori therapy to a different uh, combination, and there are a number of those available um, up to date covers those and uh, so you'd want to try another round of uh, treatment to see if again you can achieve eradication. The reason to eradicate uh, is that Number one, his risks of getting an ulcer, if you don't eradicate, are quite high. So if you treat just with a PPI after um, you know an attempt to eradicate, but you haven't eradicated, the bug will still be there. And then, as soon as the patient stops taking the PPI or he adds in a nonsteroidal or something else that'll upset the balance, then he's at high risk for relapsing uh, ulcer disease. Uh, The other thing is he is uh, at some risk for, since he's probably had H. pylori in his stomach since uh, childhood, that he's at some risk for uh, GI malignancy, uh, gastric cancer, um, either the most common kind, the adenocarcinoma, or uh, the less common kind, the extranodal um, lymphomas uh, that are known as a mucosal associated lymphoma lymphoid uh, tissue or maltoma. So he has some risks there, so you would uh, want to uh, make sure you get rid of the H. pylori. Now, uh, if you've done the EGD up front, um, like I suggested, then you would have already ruled out those uh, two types of gastric tumors, but he still, uh, if you don't get rid of the H. pylori, he still has that lifetime you know risk of uh, developing cancer. So. Uh, there's a, a good indication to eliminate that.
1: Okay. And when you're testing for a cure, does it matter which method you use? If you like, use like a breath test when you diagnose, do you want to just keep it the breath test or does it matter Do you, do you use a stool test when you test for cure?
2: No, I don't think it matters much.
1: Okay, gotcha. Um, and like you said, yeah, our patient was treated with 14 days of quadruple therapy um, with the bismuth, metronidazole, tetracycline, and a PPI. And we chose to use the combination pill Pilara just because this patient had um, kind of a track record of missing appointments and a language barrier. We thought it was easier for him to just take one combination pill instead of the uh, piecemeal. Uh, and like you said, there is there is a significant cost difference Though I kind of ran the numbers on GoodRx. Pylara for a 10-day course is about $306 here. And if you broke that up into the three uh, three pills, bismuth, and tetra, uh, tetracycline, it comes out to about $78 for a 10-day course, which is about almost four times um, as ex- more expensive. So thanks for pointing that out. Um, all right, I think those are most of the quest- uh, questions we have here. So do you kind of just go straight to quadruple therapy now? Um, is triple therapy kind of defunct at this point or
2: well, there's debate uh about that and it's hard to actually get good resistance information in um you know various locales. So really pertinent to our issue here is uh is uh, what's the level of chlorithromycin resistance in uh the Tucson area and um it's not you know that information isn't available on any public database. Hmm. Uh, it may be that uh, particular hospitals will maintain a registry or something but I think that in the United States uh, clarithromycin resistance is somewhere between 15 to 30 percent it depends again on the population you're looking at I uh, I find that uh, for patients um, um, they, they tolerate a clarithromycin based regimen better than the tetracycline one um, and uh, they tolerate amoxicillin better than metronidazole. So I tend to go with the triple therapy, but then if they fail on eradication, I'll talk with the patient and prepare them for the fact that we're going to go to quadruple therapy and uh, do the best we can to eradicate this. So uh, that's um, one of the downsides of uh you know treating h pylori it sounds like it should be simple but when you think about it the bug is basically uh, found a unique niche Uh, it lives in the mucinous layer uh, along the gastric mucosa it has attachment factors it puts out uh, various uh, uh, proteins and one that's called the Cag protein is the one that's most associated with the inflammation of the stomach and uh, the development of cancer. So uh, those strains vary, and right now we're not uh, strain-typing them, so we just try to treat to eradicate. And so I think the, the reason is to, uh, in this case, is to eradicate to lessen his chance of gastric cancer down the road, and definitely lessen his risk of relapsing uh, ulcer disease.
1: Yeah. Is there a high recurrence risk of H. pylori and is there any preventative measures to uh, prevent reinfection?
2: Well, the likelihood of him getting reinfected after he's been eradicated, uh, of uh, the H. pylori has been eradicated is very, very low. Um, I, I think that, uh, again, it's, it's uh, probably uh, the societal uh, rates of h pylori in the hygiene probably have the are the key factors, and for most people in the united states um, they're not going to be exposed again, so I would say his risk of relapse with uh h pylori that was resistant or not fully eradicated is uh you know significant because he 's had it so long. but his risk of reinfection is very very low
1: I see all right. And I, you mentioned the long-term consequences like cancer risk and peptic ulcer disease um, worsening and those are also indications to test for H. pylori and in my reading there was uh, another indication test for H. pylori was long-term NSAID or aspirin use um, as well as unexplained iron deficiency and ITP which were kind of uncommon reasons to test for H. pylori that I've I came across in my reading.
2: The the ITP would be a a very rare uh, complication of H. pylori. The uh, synergy or uh, additive effects of H. pylori infection and nonsteroidal use are significant. Hmm. And so you've raised a good point there that if you have a patient that you you think is going to need long-term nonsteroidal therapy or is likely to be taking nonsteroidals as an outpatient uh, over-the-counter, medication um, i think it's uh, very prudent to to, uh, test them with either a breath test or uh, a stool test for h pylori because uh, their risks of developing an ulcer particularly as they age or have other associated medical problems um, you know goes up so um, you know the the additive effects of H. pylori and NSAIDs is uh, about six to eight-fold. So yes, I would uh, definitely test, and if they're positive, or, you know, talk with that patient and uh, work on eradication. One of the things when you're taking a history from a patient, you often will ask them, are you taking any NSAIDs? Uh, a lot of patients uh, won't know what an NSAID is, so they'll say no. Um, I like to give them a whole list of over-the-counter NSAIDs that uh, and say are you taking any of these and uh, that oftentimes will uh, elicit the answer yes i take advil or yes that's uh, something i you know uh, take um, on a daily basis or frequently so uh, NSAID use is uh, underreported by most people because they don't really associate it with the term but it is a great risk factor for um, um, gastric uh, and duodenal ulcers.
1: Wow. Yeah. So it sounds like pr- probably under testing for H. Pylori. I've seen plenty of patients on how mm. long term and says not being tested for H. Pylori. Okay. I think we're kind of coming up on our time. Do you have any key takeaways for our listeners?
2: No. I think it's uh, you know it's an interesting case, and um, the main thing is to keep a broad differential. Uh, when you're considering the different possibilities in the ED, and then um, make your tests count. You want to order those tests that you feel that will help you clarify the differential to uh, narrow it down to what the patient has, establish a a diagnosis, and then uh, engage in in the proper therapy.
1: Awesome. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Tillotson. We learned a lot. Oh, you're welcome.
0: What a fantastic episode and a great way to get back to broadcasting. My sincere thanks to Drs. Lee and to for taking over the reins. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We are grateful for your support. Please subscribe to our podcast and leave a review so that others can find us. We'd love it if you would share our podcast with a friend and colleague. We can be found on Anchor, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. We look forward to you joining us next time here on the Aho Way, where primary care is primary.
1: This podcast was produced by Ajay Partha. The opinions expressed on this show are those of the featured speakers and do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of their places of employment. The opinions expressed on this podcast are meant for entertainment and education and should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical conditions nor should they be used as a substitute for medical advice from a qualified, board-certified practicing
0: clinician.